Hi, this is Paul, and I'm sure my special guest will be in in a minute. And I, it's okay. I I, I failed in the Control V last night to to I sent them the email without the link, which is of course the uh, the deadly email misstep. But I I'm always trying to figure out what to do with these Friday live streams. Not that I have any lack of ideas. And often I'll bring on some of the the this little corner or this little cave or this little clearing regulars. And oh, here here he's coming right now. Um, and I'll I'll, I'll I'll there he is. I'll let you in in a second. I'm going to first give the intro, Rick. Um, and so uh, lately I've been just besieged with requests for oh, can you do my podcast? Can I do a Rando's conversation? And part of that is because I of course started the the supporter level of my channel and giving people basically saying, okay, well, let's, we'll do a conversation. And I was, I was unprepared for how fast the, um, the membership section would grow. And so I, I get an email from, from someone I didn't know and a name I didn't recognize. And it had a little sub thing on the email and probably what most of you don't know, cause you don't have YouTube channels is that there are companies out there that basically you can hire them to try to get you on podcasts to try to get off zero. And they seem to be in the Philippines. And so I get these emails from people. Oh, here's so-and-so. And we think they'd be a great guest on your podcast. And I, I hear that. And I just think that's a load of BS. You have no idea who my podcast is. You have no idea who my audience is. I love talking to people who are in the conversation. I don't really have any patience for people who I uh, just want to sort of get on the channel because I've got a measly um, five-figure sub number. So, so I so and the way I am, I explained this in an interview I did this week for another thing. The first time someone asked me for something, and I, I give them a, I try to give them a very kind no. So usually with those those uh, those that those companies that just ignore the first email, and then they keep coming after me. And then I give them a less kind no, a much more direct no in case, because they, they obviously didn't seem to hear the first no. And then if they come back again, that's when, you know, I, I told the story that at the church phone here, we church phones are just besieged by Christian telemarketers trying to sell us all of their services. And, and so then I give them the kind no. And then they don't take no for an answer because they come back. Then I give them the direct no. And this one telemarketer called a third time. And that's when I told her what I really thought. And then she hung up. And then I got a call from her supervisor telling me I was a bad Christian because I made her telemarketer cry. So, <laughs> so I, I got this email and I basically said, I, I'm besieged with requests. I, you know, I'm not really, I, I really am interested in talking to people that are sort of within this little, this little corner or this little cave or this little clearing. I was just watching Grim Grizz. And and so then the 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 administrative assistant, I was talking to her first, and then I got a call from, then I got an email from the guy. He says, well, I, I know I've talked to Peugeot and I've talked to Ben Carson and I've talked to all of these famous people, but I, I may not be as niche as Grim Grizz and, or Machu Peugeot. And I thought, boy, anybody who comes in and mentions Grim Grizz's name, I know you are paying attention. So Rick, um, you earned you earned your slot, and I also I try to explain. You know, I usually have between two and four time slots a week that I can sort of give to people, 
And but um, it, it was just so funny the way the thing rolled out. And I also thought, well, you've done these big conversations before. People, I'm a little hesitant to bring people onto a live stream because the hive mind can be a little. It's the internet. So, but I thought, no, this this guy will take it. So let's let's do a Friday randos live stream with this guy who, uh, yeah, very successfully um, got his way onto the show. So, Rick, congratulations, welcome. Hey, Paul, I am honored to be here. I cut my chops in telemarketing, so oh. that was going to be the next step to get on your show. But luckily, <laughs> the luckily the me knowing who Grim Gross was was enough for you. Was sufficient. That that was sufficient because you know I I am a I am an ardent devotee to Grim Grizz. Somebody cynically said, "Well, you only love Grim Grizz because he keeps talking about your stuff." Well, of course I um, I've got a sufficient level of narcissism as anyone does on the internet, I suppose. But I no I love I love Grim Grizz for all sorts of other reasons because I, I personally I love my the the friends I love love best tend to be those friends in low places. So. Um, so well, well, let's get going, Rick, because I don't know you at all, and you're you're sitting in a lot. So, and I I also love paradox, and so here's this guy. He's talked to. He's got a conversation with Peugeot. He's got a conversation with all of these big names, and he mentions Grim Grizz. So, who on earth are you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, I, I am a paradox. I'm a paradox. It's you know, it's it's said that that the paradox is, is most prevalent in the servant leader to to leave, but also to serve, um, and that's also pinned up with the idea of being a Christian leader. And so, you know, how do you how do you bifurcate these two things where you love the inside of the organization, you love your people, but you're willing to defend them with the ferocity that's necessary to 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 protect them adequately, right? You've got to love inwardly, and sometimes you've got to you got to be a little little ferocious, a little a little hateful. Not 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 hate in the satanic standpoint, but but a little a little aggressive on the on the outside. And so that's my life. That's my life. I mean, I've got I've got big mean people to negotiate against, uh, you know, eight to five, and then I go home and I've got three little girls that were trying to sneak in uh, uh, milkshake trips uh, so that mom doesn't find out. And you know, that's my life. That's my oh. life. Well, let's let's begin like I usually begin with Randall's conversations. Tell me about the home you grew up in. Yeah, so grew up down toward the Mexican border. I live in Houston currently, so I live halfway to the Mexican. I grew up halfway to the Mexican border, a little city called Corpus Christi, and we grew up in a two bedroom house. Uh, my my mom was always always working. My dad was always working. He was out of out of work for a little while while we were growing up, and we we basically followed him on the weekends to go paint, paint flagpoles. So he would go door to door at these banks and and give him a business card and go paint flagpoles and us kiddos would be in the car and and that's the way that we grew up. And uh grew up in a in a in a Nazarene house. So this is a Wesleyan Armenian tradition. Yeah. And to give you an idea idea how contrary they are to the uh the CRCs, uh we I showed up at I showed up college Paul and the Mennonites were sending their kids there. I figured if the Mennonite kids are being sent here, I'm in the wrong place. I will not have any fun. And so it was true. It was true. <laughs> so what was, uh, you went to a Nazarene church. What was church like for you as a kid? Yeah, you know, 100 people every Sunday, uh, Sunday school. Uh, you know, I was the guy that handed out the programs there uh, in between Sunday school and, and the service. Uh, service, you always had lunch after the same with the same people after church. Same thing on Wednesday night Bible studies. Uh, we were there Sunday nights as well. Uh, we actually did this this really interesting thing called Bible quizzing, and the Bible quizzing was was heavy on scriptural memory, 
And so throughout my throughout my childhood, I would memorize entire books of the Bible. And so sporadically, uh, I, I memorized, uh, I think it was uh, Luke, John, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And I, I can't repeat them all back right now, but I, I you kind of lose that after you start on the next the next book. But I, I remember at times John specifically sitting down with some friends and just quoting it from start to finish, word for word. Wow. And that's the sort of scriptural integrity my mom and my dad built into us when we were growing up. It was it was fantastic, and you can still use that as a treasure trove of of knowledge and uh, and passion, yeah. even to this day. Yeah, there's. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to oversell the value of scripture memorization. It, and, and, it, and since sort of biblical knowledge has really been falling out of our culture, scripture memorization is just a powerful, powerful thing. And I know some people, you know, wonder about this. Well, why on earth would you memorize anything when you have a cell phone, you have everything in your pocket? It's different when it's living inside your head. And um, so that's that's really a, a powerful thing. Did you go to did you go to public school? Went to public school most of the time. My parents were able to afford to send us to private school for I think fifth and sixth grade okay. and then public school. Okay. And that's uh, that's the way it was. And so we, you know, we were out there in the public schools and and was a little little nerdy kid. Yeah. And uh, you know, that, that that's that's the way that we rolled. And I was I was a band kid as well. Oh, you're a band kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what was yeah. your What was your first uh, besides painting flagpoles with your dad? What was your first job that you got paid from some other people? So I was actually the janitor at the church, beginning at age fifteen. Okay. And you know, I'm that I was that kid who would wait to the very last minute. It's it's Saturday night at eleven o'clock. I should be home because it's past my my curfew, and I go over to the church and and don't realize that there's going to be a funeral before the service the next morning. And I walk in and there's already a body there. <laughs> so I'm a 15 year old cleaning this sanctuary at night by myself with a dead body in the room. And that's when I figured I probably need to find a different career. <laughs> okay. Um, what was high school like for you? Yeah. So band nerd, uh, I was, I was around some really bad influences, mm. uh, uh, through the end of my junior year, into my junior year, I, I made the decision that I need to just cut them off. And so my senior, I live basically friendless, just, just cut them off cold. Like, you know, they would call looking for me. They would ask about me uh, and I just shut them down. I mean, I was still going to school with the guys, but yeah. you know, I had a, I had a friend when I was junior in high school that already had six kids as a junior in high school, six kids. Oh. Uh, I, some other friends were, were drug dealers. I, I thank God never got involved in that. Never did any drugs, nothing like that. But I remember playing pickup basketball, Paul, and, and I'm sitting there and I'm, and it's my turn to, to rotate out. And I'm sitting there because I've got to watch the weed for someone, someone's going to come pick it up. And that's, that's the sort of environment that I live, I live with this, this bifurcated yeah. life where I'm living that in my personal life. But then at, at church, I'm, I'm, I'm in this, the scriptural integrity. Was, was there a moment that or an incident that happened that made you decide, okay, I've got to draw a line here. I've got to turn around. I've got to head in a different direction because if I'm not, I'm going with these people. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it was, I think it was in my junior year where I mentioned the book of John. It was very, 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 very important to me. And we they had this thing called a, a world Bible quizzing championship. We ended up winning it that year, but to show how, how, 
I guess how cut and dry it was or, or how, how systematic it was. We actually memorized the concordance to the book of John <laughs> and we that thing because you had to anticipate what the question was going to be after one word and one syllable generally. If you're and you had to like finish the question, then you have to answer it is the way that it worked. So because the wow. first person to you know want to respond to the question had to finish the question. So that's the way it was. And that junior into my junior year was really striking. It, it wasn't a it wasn't a spiritual encounter, I would yeah. say. But I think that at that point I had gotten enough of the gospel into my brain and into my heart that I realized I got to be cold blooded about this. And I and I was. Okay. What did you do after high school? Yeah, so uh, went to college at Southern Nazarene University in Oklahoma City, and again, grew up in Corpus Christi. Uh, majored in in trumpet performance and music business, so I have a lot of a lot of music theory, uh, music composition, things like that uh, that we had to take then. And I ended up meeting my wife my senior year. Walks into the band hall and come to find out she grew up down in Corpus Christi with me as well. And I just never met her before. So we both grew up in the exact same place. I knew her sister. She knew my sister. But we had never we had never met. Just a total God thing. We've been married 21 years, and uh, and so we we were up there. Uh, started the first business one summer down in Corpus Christi. So I was home for home for summer break, and from Oklahoma City. So Oklahoma City to Corpus Christi is a nine hour drive. Okay. And so started the business one summer in Corpus Christi, just going door to door, just asking for business. Uh, was able to hire a couple people at the end of the summer, and I would drive back and forth every week. So Thursday classes would end in Oklahoma City. I would drive the nine hours back to Corpus. Friday, I would see clients. Saturday, I would train staff. Sundays, I would drive back. I did that every week for uh, 18 months until we finally both graduated and moved down to uh, Corpus Christi. Wow. Well, well, what kind of business did you start? It was a facility manager. So for, for commercial uh, companies, we would give yep. them one, one price. So if you needed like a roof replaced or HVAC unit replaced, anything like that, that, that went out over that year, we would cover the cost for it. And so it was something that I had some knowledge about and we would, we would get in that. And it was, it was a, a pretty, a pretty good business. That's interesting. So, well, talk to me about how that business works, because obviously it's, you know, because there are different kinds of businesses that do this sort of thing. And because, I mean, because I'm a pastor of a church, <laughs> I know about, you know, HVAC systems going out, uh, plumbing issues. I mean, I, I know a lot of church planters that sit there and they're like, oh, gosh, I wish I had a facility. And there are times it's like, yeah, you, yeah, facility's awful nice because you're all set up on Sunday, even if you have to rent it out just to make ends meet. But um, at the same time, you have this facility and the parking lot needs to be refixed or there's an HVAC system that goes out. So so your business was basically for for a certain price, we're going to cover, we're basically going to ensure that you don't have to have these big costs. And so you, you basically can budget our our price into your budget and know what you spend. So instead of like trying to save money and then whoop, we got to spend a ton on a parking lot or a thing. So I'm curious, how do you as a business figure out that number? Because to me, that would seem, I mean, that's, that's whether your business is going to live or die. Cause if you get that yes. number right, you'll be okay. You get that number wrong. 
some church that you've contracted with loses their HVAC and it's going to cost 30 grand. And suddenly your business is like, you're on for that 30 grand. And it's like, you get two or three of those and you're done. So yeah, how, yeah. how do you do a business like that? So it's, it's very much like, like the actuarial business and insurance, right? You, you, you know exactly how long a light bulb lasts and how long, how long a specific brand of compressor lasts inside of an HVAC unit. You know, you know, all these things and you have master spreadsheets that just figure that out what that, what that probability of going out would be. Uh, you also, you know, you also take care of some of the recurring needs, the daily needs. So like the, the cleaning and the maintenance and the engineering and the landscaping and all that sort of thing, because you can get eyes on the problems a lot sooner, right? You know, if you're not, if you're not looking at it every day, you really don't know what's going wrong. And you may be six months down the road, maybe too far gone to repair. It has to be replaced. And so that that's, it's, it's a predictive maintenance business, essentially what it was. And, um, and, and so it, it, it's a, it's risk, but you get paid for risk if you're able to, to measure it correctly. Yeah. So I, obviously we've never met until now, but just listening to your story and, 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 and looking at you and, and getting some, just trying to, just trying to cold read you to what degree did, did your parents, uh, did your parents, I mean, it, it seems like from your story, your parents knew they had to work hard to make ends meet. And you're a kid growing up, you learned something from them that, hey, uh, life, life is a hustle. I mean, life, you have to, you, you, you sit around in life. I mean, you can find lots of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs about this. Um, what, what, tell me about that relationship, about watching your parents, because quite obviously from a very young age, you were a go-getter because I knew a lot of people in college and I don't know anybody I know a few people who did something like you did, but but people like you are kind of a rare breed because most college students on the weekend are not even studying. So, you know, talk to me about how that growing up sort of put you on a track to where even in college, you're you're already you're already starting a a pretty sophisticated business. Yeah. Yeah. Just for full clarity, uh, I was a C and B student in high school and college. I never read a complete book. In fact, I, I, I would basically, I would basically take those, those, uh, those yellow books, those summary books, uh, clip yeah. notes, I think is what they were back then. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I would skim those, uh, if I, if I was going to be a good student that, that week. And so I just had no care for, uh, for formalized education. Now I'm an avid reader now, but back then that's the way it was. Now my parents really operated like a, like a cohesive unit. So when my dad was out of work for a number of years. My mom picked up a second full-time job wow. and then she also had a part-time job on the weekend. So I remember very, very vividly, she would go into a regular job at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, work till three, come home, uh, see some, see some clients there. Um, and she would, she was a nurse. So she would, she would either do tele some, you know, phone screenings, things like that. And then she would work an overnight shift in our back bedroom with a phone line there and a computer. And she would take calls from doctor's offices all night long. The next morning, she'd get back up and do it again. And then on Saturdays, she would work a full day. It's, I, I don't know if it was a 16 hour day or 20 hour day, or whatever it was to have a, that have this third income going as well. Wow. And they were just, a, they were just, you know, a, a great, a great partnership and how it worked. They never, I don't think I ever heard them discuss how they would make that, yeah. make that work, but they were just, they were, they were hustlers and they, and they realized that, uh, you know, I, I remember one summer, my dad and I had to figure out what to do. And our job for that summer 
was we would go go around to garage sales and we would ask the people that are on the garage sales, do you have any, do you have like any boxes of old watches like from a dad or a granddad or something like that? Yeah. And they would say, oh yeah, we've got this box. And they would bring it out and we would, we would basically eye it and appraise whether or not it was real. We would buy it there and then go sell it at a pawn shop or go sell it to a dealer. And so we traded like, like, like Indian traders yeah. uh, for, for entire summer just to, just to pay the bills. Um, and you've got it. And I remember, I remember my wife's probably watches. I remember dumpster diving too. I remember them drop pulling up in the back of a grocery store and us kids would jump in the, in the dumpster and look for those dented cans that they would throw out. That's, that's how we rolled. Yep. What did you learn about marriage by watching your parents' marriage? Wow. Great question. Great question. That if you love someone that you don't necessarily need to articulate, you should articulate it, but you don't necessarily need to articulate it. You're, your work and your commitment and your sacrifice mean more than flowers, mean more mm. than gifts. Mm. And the very giving of oneself is the highest possible gift that you give. And that that's really that's really what I saw. My my parents are not lovey dovey towards one another. They hang out all the time. They go to lunch yeah. every day. I mean, they're they're together, yeah. but you know, they're not they're not all over each other. Yeah, yeah. Now, and and one of the things that I think people don't realize is that there are actually lots of ways to have a good marriage. Um, and, and I think we get presented, oh, this is the formula for a good marriage. And it's like, well, that's probably a formula for a good marriage, but there are actually a lot of different ways for a good marriage. So when you met the woman who would become your, well, let me ask you this. Did you, were, were you, were you, because a lot of my audience are single men. So uh, were you, were you a hit with the ladies or were you the kind of guy that sort of, you know, well, well talk, talk to me about you as a single guy. Yeah, I, I was very single. I was very, very, very single. Yes. I was not, uh, I was not the, um, I was not the, not the ladies man by any sorts of the manager. I mean, I, I had opportunities and I just, I just wasn't interested. I just uh-huh. wasn't interested, uh, by, by what I saw. And then when my wife walked, I remember my wife walking to the band hall that one day and it was like a, it was like a ray of sunshine. And I'm like, that's the woman for me. And, uh, it, 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 we, we never, we never look back. It is amazing. And there, there are, there are, there are psychology books on this topic. It is amazing how often that dynamic happens. I, I remember the first moment I laid eyes on the woman that became my wife. I remember that moment. I remember exactly when it was, where it was, what she was wearing. I mean, that picture is in my mind. Now, I didn't think at that moment she's going to be my wife, but I saw her and I paid attention. And actually, I didn't get to meet her until about eight, nine months later. And then I met her again another six or seven months later. And um, so... So when you, she walked into the band hall, uh, uh, what happened? What did you say? What did you do? Did you wait? Did, um, I mean, obviously you, you strike me now, you strike me as the kind of guy who probably married up. So I'm not, not, I'm not, I, no offense yes. here, but yes. it's just, just an impression because I know I did. So yes. Oh yes, yes, yes. I, so I was a little bit too nervous to speak to her. Now I'm a senior. She's a freshman. I'm a little sooner to speak to her. I did not ask her out. I sat behind her in band. So she was a saxophone player, tenor sax player. I was a trumpet player. So I sat behind her. I was, you know, 
like, like those are beautiful ears. Those are beautiful feet, but that's all I can see. But I, I, I like what I see. And, uh, and so that's where we were. Finally, about three months into school, I think it was October, November, they had a kind of a Sadie Hawkins weekend where the girls asked the guys out and yeah. she asked me out. This freshman Ooh. asked me out. Ooh, all right. And, and come to find, come to find out she was from a, from a very, um, very great family. She was a fifth generation Nazarene. She had Nazarene pastors in her, in her background. Yeah. Uh, her family were farmers and just very, very avid entrepreneurs, just, just very, very gifted, uh, deal makers wow. who, who love, who love the Lord. And, uh, and it's it just, it's just a wonderful family to be a part of now, but I definitely married up. That's, that's for sure. So, um, how, how long until you started dating and, th and then you married, you're a senior. So you probably wanted to get on with life. Did, did you marry before she finished school? Yes. We married about a, a semester before she finished. Okay. And then, and then we relocated back to Corpus. So by that time I probably was up to. Uh, maybe 20 or 30 employees in the business. And so I need to get back to Corpus to take care of things. Okay. And then pursuant to the next, or the next four years, it, it grew pretty dramatically okay. up to 400 W2 employees. Okay. And so that, that first four years of marriage was a lot of work uh, yeah. on, on the, on the professional front. Well, part of, part of getting married is, you know, you have this first draft that you inherited from your parents and your parents were obviously uh, an an economic um, like economic partnership that they worked hard to survive. They took care. Um, what was it like when you got married in terms of because part of the things when you get married, you have these two first drafts that you're probably not even aware of. Just have these assumptions about what marriage is going to be. And then you come and you realize I married someone who has a different assumption about what marriage was. What, what was that like for you? Yeah. So for, I'll say for my wife first, she married me and then she realized that she basically married her ultra entrepreneurial, ultra aggressive dad. She basically, oh, her father. and so unusual. no, no, no. So the, so then the, um, I wouldn't say the corrective procedures began, but, but I think there, there was, there was definitely some warning, like, Hey, you're sounding a little bit too much like my dad, or you're sounding a little bit too much like this, or maybe you can temper down a little bit, those sorts of things. And, and I, and I needed them. I needed them big time. Yep. Now, from my perspective as well, uh, a little bit of context. So my mom comes from a couple who were married for, I don't know, 60, 60 or something like that. Yep. My father comes from a family where his father drank himself to death. And so did his father and his father. So he comes from three generations of men that drank themselves to death. My dad was the first generation who stopped drinking. Yep. And so, and so we've kind of have that, I guess, in our blood, if that's a proper thing to say or not, yep. but, but me knowing that that's in my background, I play it really, really safe. Like yep. I'd never drink. I never smoke. Yep. I have such addictive personality, especially <laughs> with work. I'm going to go all in. Like, yeah, man, if, if I, if I have my first drink today, I'll also have my last drink today. Cause I'll be dead by midnight. That's just, the, that's just the, my, my personality. And so I can't, I can't chance it, but she knows this going in. Yeah. And so, and so from my background, we look at the two uh, paternal figures as the, the, the dominating voices in our marriage. And, and of course I'm kind of the crux at that. So I'm the one that also that has to be the safest possible husband, yep. but also the most provisional type of husband because she's used to a certain lifestyle, a certain workload, a certain uh, certain sort of sort of set of benefits that are that are accrued to that. Okay, okay, and um, and then 
so you're you've got this business which is a it's a it's a one one of the things I one of the things I really love about being a pastor and it's not so much anymore because my church is you know not not a lot of people in my church have day jobs anymore they're almost all retired um at least the older crew uh, one of the things I always enjoyed being a pastor was getting a set, getting a chance to get to know people because it gave me a chance to get to know their work. So one of one of my favorite people in the church that has now passed on, he was a rice farmer, and you know it, it really gave me a chance to learn about if far you know people think of farmers as you know sort of hayseeds out there, but farmers are fierce business people. If you're not if you're not a fierce business person as a farmer, you will be an ex-farmer or you will be a hobby farmer because farming farming is a is a really is a really sharp business. So you obviously you're a go-getter, you're a business guy, you get this you get this company going up. It's a it's a it's a and the thing grows big. And so now in a sense, like your parents, you're a hustler, but you're successful. I mean, you're probably, you're, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're watching that business and you're making sure, you know, you're making sure that the business is going well, you're working hard. What, what's, what's it like making that transition from you're still a hustler, but you're succeeding in a way that probably your parents didn't. What was that like for you? Yeah. So I never met anyone growing up that had a company of a hundred people, let alone 400. And, and the way that I realized that I had 400 employees was one year I was, when I was 26, we were sending out the W2s. You have to, you just have to mail them out. Right. And so we had them all printed up and I'm there stuffing envelopes and I'm, I have to figure out how many stamps I'm going to buy to go mail them out. And yeah. I started counting them and I, I'm over 400 and I'm like, this is, this is interesting, but I don't have an office. I don't have a management team. I'm running this thing out of, out of a coffee shop and my yeah. laptop. Yeah, and and so I don't have a clue. I don't know who to go to, and so luckily my my wife's father is there, uh, eventually able to to help walk me through that until God put other people in my life. But that's that changed the paradigm. Now, about three years after I started, I was actually able to hire my dad away from his other employer. So my dad actually worked with me uh, for probably 10, 10 to twelve years, something like that, until he retired uh, for the first time. That's good. And so. It was a great thing, Paul, man. I, I remember, I remember he had a company truck and it was going to be like, this is the Sunday night that he's going to, he's going to retire. He's going to quit his job and come work with me so we can, we can hang out all day. And wow. we're driving out there. We're driving out there and he goes and he goes, there's like a little drop box in the, in the, at the office and he goes and, and, uh, and puts the keys in there and, and he locks up it's sorry, locked up. He can't get the keys back and he yeah. comes and sits in the car. And we just kind of breathe for a second before we leave. Like, wow. what, what just happened? What just happened? Wow. And, and we've been, we, we just had the best time because we got to talk every day. It gave us a reason to talk every day. Yeah. And it was, it was probably one of the most wonderful decades of my entire life. He's still, he's still alive and we still work yeah. on some other projects yeah. together, but it was, it was just a, just a, a huge blessing. It was a little bit awkward to sign my dad's paychecks. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, we didn't make it awkward. We didn't yeah. make it awkward. It just, it just, he and I, and that's the kind of relationship that we've got. Oh, that's tremendous. I was, um, I mean, part of what's going on in this little corner of these little live streams and Luke Thompson had a live stream yesterday and he starts talking about his father who was an iron worker and he was building these power plants up in South Dakota. And, 
Um, again, in terms of what has sort of grown around me, it's mostly men. And, and so, you know, there's, there's lots of daddy issues and, um, and sometimes good, sometimes bad. And so I think, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful story. Um, so, so how did, how did having a big, what did you learn by having a big company? So the first thing was that I had more responsibility than I really wanted. Mm. It was a lot of headache. It was a lot of headache. And so, so I began to build out the management team. I thought it would make my life easier and it really didn't. It, it's supposed to, but it, it really didn't. And so we began actually outsourcing as much as possible, closing down a lot of markets and, and just, just trying to get streamlined with that. And so over a number of years, we got streamlined and we ended up making a lot more money at 40 than we did 400 just because of the efficiencies, yep. just because yep. of the efficiencies. And so you outsource the lowest margin work and focus on the highest margin work. And so yep. we eventually spun that. So we knew how to operate buildings and and, and manage our costs. Yep. We spun that, added a uh, property accounting service there, added leasing service there, added uh, third party like brokerage investment advisory there. Yep. And then we were approached by a group of 11 family offices, uh, very, very wealthy family offices who who said, hey, we want to partner with you and let's go buy some properties. And so we've been buying commercial real estate with them along because they knew I knew what I was doing. Yep. And yep. so and so that was something totally unexpected, but it, it came by way of having that large company seeing the need to downsize it so you could focus on the more important elements of what it means to operate a commercial property, for instance. Yep. And then from there, using that as a uh, sort of an attractive type of asset, attractive type of platform through which we could build relationships, relationships that were higher value. Yep. And so that, that's what we've been doing. Yeah. That, that I think is actually, I, you know, so I, I have all these new, I, I am the epitome of a, of a, of a one horse shop here because I mean, really um, I do everything at this church. Uh, we got someone else to do the janitorial, but with, even with a lot of the little things that we have, tiny little, little jobs that people do, I often wind up having to sort of make sure those jobs work. And, and so then people are often, but I have a lot of, I have friends who have larger churches and so have staff. And I, I was actually talking about with my wife about this this morning, because it's like, People are always like, well, you, you really need to hire someone. And it's like, people, this is a, it's a really careful dance. And I was just watching um, uh, Marquise Brownlee, who just did a video on all these people quitting YouTube. And the reason they quit YouTube is they start out doing YouTube and being YouTubers because they really enjoy it. But the bigger the channel goes, the more they realize, well, I can't manage it. So then they bring in people and, and, and very quickly you wind up being a manager and this happens to a lot of pastors because if you're a if you're a sharp pastor and a successful pastor and your church is growing very quickly many of the things that made you successful as a pastor are not really the gift mix um or the job that you need to maintain a large congregation and so as a person you really have to sit down and think about now now who really am i and what am I called to do and what do I want to do? 
And, and that's, that's a little countercultural because the culture usually says grow for growth's sake. And, and really you have to ask, well, what, what exactly is the thing that I need to grow? And who exactly am I? And what exactly is my calling? And then what does that path look like? And that story you just told, I think, really, I think, nicely sort of showed, oh, you've you've got to pay attention because everyone around you is celebrating. Oh, you have 400 employees and you're managing all of these properties. And and you take a step back and you have to say, wait a minute, what 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 just happened to my life? This business has colonized me. So was there an incident or something that sort of you got to a point and you said you had an aha moment? What what was that about? It was a very skinny, well-dressed man that ascended to the presidency that put into place this rule that if you have over 50 employees, you're going to pay for health care for all of them. And so, uh-huh. so, 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 so think about that. Think about I, I'm very careful with my California friends over there. I, I know I know everyone's a big Gavin fan. Um uh, but but I want to be very careful. I'm be very politically correct here. You know, I almost I almost I almost tweeted at you last night, Paul, that uh, I heard Martin Shaw was able to drop the f bomb twice on your program uh, a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, he was. So and so that I'm I'm actually going to work on my Brit tonight. And I showed that tweet to my wife before I sent it. She said Rick uh, saying Brit is probably offensive to some people. And so she said, promise me that you're not going to say Brit on the program tomorrow. So I'm not saying Brit. I'm not saying Brit. So I don't want to be I don't want to be divisive here. So so you know this this very well dressed, very very well mannered, very polished man comes into presidency. And so I'm I'm going to penalize every company over fifty. In fact, you're going to get health insurance for all of them. Now you do the math, do the math. So you've got so let's say you've got four hundred. You've got to pay for three hundred fifty people's health care insurance for that fifty first employee. Yeah. So yeah. So if you can get below the fifty. Yeah. You you get rid of all that expense. Yeah. You get rid yeah. of all of it. Yeah. And I'm I'm no fool. I'm gonna put it on a spreadsheet. And this yeah. and the spreadsheet it, it didn't it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and so that that was the big deciding factor. Um, around, around this time as well, someone had given me a book um, by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. You've yeah. probably seen yeah. that little that little pamphlet yeah. there. I was on a yeah. I was on a flight, and uh, it's centered around this this little little nothing of a verse, Luke 12, 34, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, that the that the heart follows the treasure. And I started thinking, well, my my treasure is my time and my money. And they're all wrapped up in these in these people here that don't really care about me. If I die today, they're gonna go work somewhere else. It's no yeah. no big deal. Yeah. And so and so I began a process of giving away as much as I could possibly afford to. Um, and so it for for many years it was it was half my income. And just just the way the tax brackets work out and the AGI yeah. caps, you, you really really can't give much more than that away for yeah. too many years in a row. And so as I started to do that, I began being approached by organizations to whom we were helping, yeah. who asked me to help strategically, like in a in a board role or advisory role, consulting role. And through that process, I began getting very involved in some in some nonprofit organizations. And so my schedule, instead of working 16 hours a day on the business, I would work eight hours a day on the business plus eight hours a day doing nonprofit work. And that really helped write the ship, right? You, you can get some, some true perspective when you're not just looking at one thing. And so that's, that's helped. And there are 
fungible skills moving back and forth between the two worlds. They're yeah. they're quite fungible. Interesting. So you you down you downsize your business. Well, well, you know, the, so the hive minds, the hive minds blowing up and, um, you know, you've, uh, you, you've, you've offended the guy who got you in here. So let's, let's, uh, let's not, uh, let's, let's not let elephants stay in the room. Um, well, let's talk about healthcare because this is a, this is a, this is a touchy thing in America because unlike say Canada or, or the Brits, um, there, I said it, uh, you know, you know, I've got some, I've got some nieces who are working, they're working retail and it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult dance because I understand for the sake of these businesses, they've got low skill employees and they, they want to sort of maximize with respect to these low skill employees. And, um, so, all right. So keep them under a certain number of hours so they don't have to pay health insurance. Keep them under certain hours. But then then the business are also sort of saying, well, we want you available. And I, I actually work with a lot of people sort of in this because I work with a lot of poor people. Um, well, we want you to be available all the time, but we're only going to give you 20 hours a week. So So talk to me about, because what's interesting is, and and this is why I think sort of the shallow divide that American politics works on is is not what people think it is because you grew up on both sides of this because and this is also my impression that I know I know a fair number of successful successful business people that are successful as business people because they've also known poverty so so talk to me about uh, you know I, I'm this is not really a political channel but talk to me about talk to me about healthcare cuz I I know another successful business guy in northwest Iowa who sort of had the reverse idea he was a he was a scientist and he was a you know he had multiple PhDs and he would build these businesses and he basically would outcompete the chinese in pharmaceuticals but he he not only wanted to make sure his all of his employees had healthcare he also wanted to make sure that all of his employees had enough money so their kids could go to Christian school. So, I mean, talk to me about yeah. how this works in your mind, because you're clearly a committed yeah. Christian and you clearly yeah. care about people and you know about poverty. But when I hear people work with this, it's I often hear there are different strategies with respect to these needs and employment and poverty. So talk to me a little bit yeah. about this. So so two two quick notes, uh, notes of context that, that are not patently obvious. So first yep. thing, keep in mind that we're predominantly down next to the Mexican border. And this is this is at an early time where E-Verify, things like that were not prevalent. So okay. you're competing against companies that are hiring illegal, uh, not not illegal, but undocumented uh, citizens. I forgot what they were called 20 years ago, but they were, they were right. called a different right. thing that they're called now. Yep. So my apologies for that. The yep. second thing was that the remaining 50 people, they were offered cash that was that was between $500 and $1,000 a, a month so they could go actually on the healthcare exchange and buy their own healthcare insurance. Out of the 50 people that did that, I was the only one that did it. No one wanted really? the health insurance because it sucked. It was horrible healthcare insurance. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. So they kept the cash. Yeah. So so we so th those are those are two things that I that I should have mentioned up front, but th I, but yep. that that's that's what was happening in the background. Yep. Health insurance. This is an issue that both parties have have botched. Yeah. They both botched. Yeah. The the first administration it was too big of a program, and they just did not have the competency 
in the administration to pull it off. So, so what I, what I mean, what I mean, and that's not a political statement. It's a, it's a, it's an operational statement that the value that we get when we pay, say, a thousand dollars a month for health insurance is not equal to a thousand dollars a month. It's not even equal to five hundred dollars a month. If there's so much fluff. There's so much regulation. There's so much lack of competition there that it, it's just not a value. So you're not getting the value in exchange. That that's my big issue with with the program. If you got value in exchange for that that expense, that'd be a different thing, but you don't. Yeah. And it's a part it's a problem of both parties because there have been both parties in in office since then that that have not fixed it. It's too big of a problem. It's just yeah. too big of a problem. And it takes it's it can't be fixed in four years. I think you need probably a full eight years to fix it, would be my guess. You might, it's you even might fixable. need 16 or 20 actually, because it is a it is a huge problem for us. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a, it's more of a statement of economics and, and the cost benefit analysis. Okay. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, us knowing that our competitors were not going to get it because they were hiring undocumented yep. people that were not, that they weren't going to report anyway, yep. that, and are going to our clients, our clients say, wait, hey, we're going to let you guys go if you, if you have to add yep. this cost back in. Yep. And so we're going to, we're not going to take losses. It's not, it's not like we're gonna take less money. We're not, we're not going to, pay money to 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 people so that they can do unprofitable work for us so we can lose money it yep. just a, it, it's a mathematical decision it's not it's not an ethical decision yeah good 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 i'm glad we you know because 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 what happens sometimes with a conversation is especially and this is part of the thing about a live stream is at least i can be a little responsive to the hive mind there and figure out what's going on and and these are these are issues that trip people up and and they don't, part of the reason I do the conversations the way I do is that um, you, you get to some of these stumbling blocks. And of course, you know, the biblical reference to that. And, and suddenly people lose sight of the good because their attention all goes to, oh, he said this about healthcare. I don't want to listen to him. I think that's kind of a stupid way to go about life. So you you downsize your business. You, 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 start, you start radically giving away your... Um, you know, you start radically giving away and, and then you begin, and I'm sure one of the things that you began to run into is that not only, if a business is poorly managed, it'll usually go under. If a Christian ministry is poorly managed, it will, it's almost like the government, it'll get bailed out <laughs> just because of the, the, um, the, the mercy of, of people out there. So, so, so talk to me about this transition you made from saying, okay, you know, I'm, I've already succeeded in business. I know how to run a business. I'm, I'm very interested in what's going out there in terms of kingdom work, but I really need, see the need for leadership development. Tell me, is, is there a, was there a moment or an event or something that happened that sort of turned your light on with respect to this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I came in in my 20s to an organization that was a evangelical type of organization. They had about 800 staff in, in a number of countries that um, that did a lot of really good work. And their, one of their measurements was how many additional people they could hire. They had them in teams. And these were, uh, if you're familiar with the Jesus Film Movement through Campus Crusade, it's, it's one of those. And, and so they would send out these teams. And obviously, the more teams you have, the more presentations of the gospel that are that are being made. And so, and so that was their primary statistic. Now they would also count conversions and church plants and things like that, that were really, really important. But the team's model was a little bit heartening because they would not measure the economics on the other side of that. Um, and so, so, you know, me conceptually knowing that I could do more with a 10th of the people 
I, 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 I suspect you might be able to do more with it with less people or at least with le less resources. And so they, they eventually put me in charge of, it was a 40 person board and they basically, they eventually put me um, as chairman of the development. So we were in charge of all the fundraising. So we would, we would host 10 galas all over the country. We would host uh, 10 or 15 mission trips where we'd bring donors down to see different parts of the, the world, that sort of thing. And I got really good at doing the difficult thing. Remember, like I, I mentioned, that I, I did some telemarketing when I was growing up that, and I, I'm used to going door to door. So I pride myself in doing the uncomfortable thing that no one else wants to do. And that thing in that case was asking people for money, especially people that were very, uh, very formidable uh, by their by their life experiences. Most yeah. of these people were very wealthy because competency uh, is is reflected in in wealth in the in the in the secular community. And so, and so I got the chance to be able to talk to these people, and and I. I wouldn't say I fixed the problem, but I, I made it a lot more endurable and reinforced that area of the of the organization. And gradually, we were able to bring other people on. I eventually became chairman of that organization. We scaled up to twenty three hundred uh, team members by the time I left. It took took about ten years to do all that. And so and so that was one of the principles: is, is number one, you've got to do what you don't want to do because uh, no one else wants to do it. Yeah. Um, and then and then if you can do that, if you can do that, you're in a stronger stronger position. And then number two. Uh, you can do more with less, and so and so we we took those two principles and and really really saw that come to fruition in that organization. Okay, okay. Well, it's interesting because, and again, I I have to sort of cold read you because we don't, you know, this is uh, what we know of each other. Uh, let's what I know of you is what we've got going here. Um, and I, and I feel a little like a stalker here because I've been watching you on YouTube for for at least the last year or two. Okay, so, okay. No, <laughs> so I'm the uncomfortable one. I'm used to that asymmetry. I'm used to that asymmetry. Um, it's also my impression, listen to your story that, and I've known other people like you. I mean, my father spent 36 years in his first church. I've been 26 years in this church. You're the kind of guy that keeps moving. You keep starting things. You have a thing over here. You have a thing over there. You have a thing over there. Um, talk to me about what it's like inside of you when you have the sense of, okay, I'm going to do this new thing, or I'm going to move on, or I'm going to leave this thing. Because often starting a new thing is easy. Leaving a thing is a lot harder. Tell me about that sort of thing. Yeah. So business-wise, the, the business we have now is just a continuity from what we've had over the last 26 years. Okay. From that, That's the way that I view it. Like there's, yeah. there's add-ons, there's bolt-ons, there's rebrands, that sort of thing. We never really went out of business. We never really did anything that was a you know, you fire everyone, that sort of thing, or sell everything. But it, it seems continuous in, from my perspective. Now, for the nonprofit uh, perspective, a lot of times these have, uh, you know, term limits, or you have to roll off after certain time periods. And so, yeah, that's uh, true. For, yeah. And so that's been a lot of it. Um, sometimes I'll, you'll just find something that you just don't like. Uh, structurally about the organization that you don't realize some some hidden clause in the bylaws that that allows someone to do something that you you perceive is is unethical yeah. and so and so and you, you have the opportunity to be either to destroy the organization bring it down by sheer force or you can just walk away and I've done that I've done that it it, it, it pains me to do a lot of work for really great organizations uh, find something you don't like that you know is not you know is not right yeah. Yeah. and you just walk away you just kind of just eat it just, yeah. just swallow up, swallow up the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, well, what's what's your? I mean, we'll we'll take questions from the hive mind, and today's going to be an interesting live stream. I could tell already because, well, let me let me talk about these divides. I th I think any this this will this will be controversial too. I, I think any I think any space in which real things are happening, there are going to be divides. You you can't you can't deal with real things without dealing with contradictions because that's kind of the way the world is 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 shaped for us right now so um so so what are you um so what are you what are you doing now and well well let me let me go with this how on earth did you find me and why on earth did you want to talk to me <laughs> so i interviewed jonathan pajot on my show maybe about two years ago okay and and so i got to know jonathan uh, through that. And then, and then he just, he just took off like a rocket ship yeah. right around that period and, and no, no looking back. And so I really enjoyed that conversation. And I'm a, I mentioned, I never really read in high school or college. I I've pivoted since then. So, you know, I'll, I'll come into the office and I'll, I'll read my Bible for an hour every morning that I'll read something else for another hour. And so I've, I've gotten more thoughtful. And so I think the, the algorithm has, has picked that up and sent me what I should be watching. And so, and so, yep. you know, you eventually showed up and, and so ne never, never really looked back there. Uh, now day, day to day is a little bit different now. So I'm focused on, on writing a book that I hope to release uh, the middle of this year. Um, I'm also working on a, um, on, on a new, uh, business launch, which is, which is sort of a, a succession of, of, of some of our other business pursuits, uh, in the financial space. Um, and then, and then I'm, I'm working on, just becoming a better person. A uh, number of years ago, I used to sit down or well, for a number of years, I've sat down every year to do my annual planning. And I always would list the things that I want to do this year. I want to hire this oh. many people. I want to fire this many people. I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. And so about two years ago, Paul, the Holy Spirit told me that I don't want you to do something. I want you to become someone and mm. someone very specific. And so that thought, that revelation has dominated my thinking for the past probably two years. It's not what you do, it's what you become that matters. It's, it's the Tozerian uh, type, of, type of thought that it's not what you do that makes you whole, it's why you do it. It's that sort of thinking. And so that's really pervaded and invaded my mind and my life uh, over the last couple of years, and I, I want more of it. I noticed, so, you know, I, I hadn't heard of you at all, so then I... You know, you'd sent me some links. So then I went to your YouTube channel. I looked through a bunch of things. And, and that very much, that very much does seem <clears throat> to be, I mean, you're playing around with YouTube too. You're making videos, you're talking to people. You, you, for, for a while you had sort of a, um, your Peugeot conversation was sort of, you had a sort of from the mansion type thing. And then lately things have changed. Talk to me about how you're using YouTube to become something to, to grow in who you are rather than what you do. Yeah. So the first 12 episodes was, was kind of a season of conversations and it, it yeah. culminated in, in a series of live, live audience events here at this thing we call the mansion. Uh -huh. uh, it's about a, that's about a 13,000 square foot building. We've got a 7,000 square foot lounge. So it's great for parties. Yep. This is yep. where our offices are up here. Okay. Uh, just for context. Yep. And at the end of that, my marketing um, lead came to me and said, Rick, I want to show you the budget because we didn't plan on doing a, a series of podcasts here. Um, 
and for this year for the budget, but I want to show you what, what your show costs. Now, the very final show was Don Trump Jr. Uh, we, it, was, it was a nonprofit. It was a, it was a fundraiser for a nonprofit, uh, faith-based nonprofit that he agreed to come, and I agreed to, to make a contribution to the nonprofit. So he didn't really benefit. I didn't benefit. We just were kind of having fun. Yeah. We invited friends, had an open bar, had valet, had secret service here for five days. It was, it was kind of a nutso type of thing. Well, so those sorts of things started happening. Uh, so she shows me the budget and we spent a quarter of a million dollars on 12 episodes. I mean, we had six cameras. If, if you, if you watch the, that last Don Jr. One, we've got five or six cameras on his intro. It's, we were just doing stupid, stupid things. And so, so I cut it off. I cut it off after that. I said, guys, this is, yeah. this is, this is too much. I know we're having fun, yeah. but we're just, we're just not going to do this. And so I took about a year off. And then I started to to just hit the hit the record button and just think through some different things that I was learning about. Uh, you'll see some you see some ebbs and flows where we would hire consultants, yeah. and they would say, "Hey, Rick, we need to talk about business. We need to talk about this great building that you bought where you made millions of dollars here. That kind of stuff." Just a couple of those in there. I feel very uncomfortable with those things, yeah. but they they said that's what the algorithm wanted to see, yeah. and so I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to do what the what the professionals want. <laughs> and the algorithm really didn't give a give a give a crap about it. So um, so you'll see those sorts of things in there. And so it's just sort of an experimentation. I actually enjoy uh, going on other people's programs. I've probably been on maybe twelve to fifteen other people's programs uh, in the past uh, sixty days or so, maybe ninety okay. days. And that's a lot more fun. The conversation is a lot more pleasurable. For me. in fact, I was out there in California uh, two weeks ago. If you know the Christian rapper Ruslan. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I met him at yeah. Arc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very cool guy. I mean, he I mean he may have a million followers across all of his different platforms, but a really cool guy. So I was I was there. He interviewed me at uh, his studio there and just just a really cool guy. And so I'm doing fun things like that. That's what that's what I enjoy. And so, you know, I'll, you know, I'll get up at 3:30 in the morning in the office by 4:15 and I'll I'll put in put in 12 hours and I'm I'm calling it quits cuz I want to be home to uh, be with my daughters uh, in the evening. So that's that's what's happening these days. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'll, we'll start taking, we'll start taking questions from the hive mind here. Um, or any, anything else in terms of what, so you, you got this YouTube channel going, you're talking about CS Lewis, you're talking about a lot of, uh, things like that. Um, what's, what's, what do you, what do you sense is, I mean, besides obviously keeping your businesses running, um, being on boards of not-for-profits, what, what do you sense is, is sort of your calling these days? To help inform men that are in their 20s and 30s and looking for purpose and looking looking for a way to have purpose and also have a high levels of competency at the same time. That's that's really who I who I think that I'm called to minister to. Now, again, me, a dad of three girls, I'm thinking about this for their future husbands. I've got to figure out a framework where I can coach these guys because the odds that they're going to hire someone, that they're going to marry someone like me are very, very low. And the odds that they're going to want to take advice from someone like me are very, very low. And so I've got to be able to change the culture in my my local uh, local church, my local community. Uh, I just started hosting a couple of uh, CEO small groups okay. of, of of decent sized CEOs, and so we're we're doing that. Um, I'm just trying to be effective. I'm I'm trying to think about what will be still around in a hundred or five hundred years. And so the best thing I can get is I can disciple men and I can write a book. Okay. Okay. 
Well, I'm going to now. So if anybody in the hive mind wants to ask a question, you can put question in all caps so I can see it, or you can do a super chat because that gets colored so I can see it. And so Anselman, who is our Scott, who has been with the channel almost from the beginning, usually has a theological side to his questions. He asked, has the Nazarene church significantly changed in recent years away from its original holiness ethos? So I left the Nazarene church uh, maybe 15 years ago. So I'm a Southern Baptist deacon now. Okay. Uh, they, they are still very entrenched in the holiness tradition. And for those, for those that aren't familiar with this Wesleyan Arminian um, system, uh, they, they believe, if you kind of look at the Pauline, uh, you know, Romans 8, 28 through 30, they would just say that the holiness, the sanctification comes in this life and you can live months and even years and steeped in holiness where you're never going to sin. So their, their, their barrier for sinning seems to be a little bit less, or excuse me, it seems to be a little bit higher than, than what ours would be in a reformed tradition. Okay. Okay. So, um, so you said Southern Baptist and reformed, there's been a big movement of reformed, um, thinking and, attention going on in the Southern Baptist is, is that sort of where you've been at or, or talk to me about that? Yeah. That's yeah. So Clint D asked the same question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I go to a very conservative uh, Southern Baptist convention uh, church. There were some very liberal ones. So um, I was in Manhattan a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I are sitting at dinner. There is a, uh, a, an older man and a younger man sitting at dinner next to us. I get up to go to the restroom. They started a conversation with my wife. I come back. He wants to know why I'm not drinking. I say, I'm a, I'm a Baptist deacon. He says, I'm a Baptist deacon too. Come to find out this is an older man in a homosexual relationship with a younger man. Uh, and, and he said, I'm a Baptist deacon too. In fact, he was chairman of the deacons. He said at I, Montgomery, Alabama, First Baptist, I think is where he said, for three years. And they've got a female senior pastor. It's, it's. I mean, it's, it's probably a lot like you would see in a lot of CRC. I would imagine these days. Um, but, but it just, it just struck me that you're sort of in the Bible Belt still, and you have that just like right off, right off the bat, and that he was chairman of the deacons for three years. And so you see some, you see some movement happening. There's a lot of pressure happening, yeah. and so it's up to the individual churches to decide for themselves where and how they want to want to move around these things. Yep. Uh, we've had, we've had some, some lightening up on the alcohol issue in our own church over yep. the past year or two. I'm not happy about it, but yep. uh, you know, I'm again, I, I'm, it's not going to change my activity anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I want to, I want to, I, I, I hadn't, I, I suspected you were going to be one of my more controversial guests here. So I'm really glad it's a live stream because I, you know, anybody, anybody who's watched this channel enough should know something about me in which I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of conflict. I, I conflict is important. And yes. so, and, and so you get into Christianity is a very live thing. And so questions, I mean, teetotalism was a major issue at the end of the 19th century that deeply impacted certain Christian denominations. Uh, the Christian Reformed Church has never been sort of a teetotal religion, but my grandmother, my father's mother, watched two of her brothers die of alcoholism. Hmm. And so she, I mean, every the Christian Reformed Church never had a thing against alcohol, but there's no alcohol in her home because, you know, and so alcoholism very, you know, and, and watching sort of this, 
the new young and reformed reformed movement saw you know pubs and pints and and these kinds of things and it's just interesting watching these different waves go through the culture where where something like um you know something like people figuring out uh, how are we to think about alcohol all right so chad chad you know, people are testing you now so and again i like i said at the beginning i said my impression of this guy, he's not shy. You can, if you disagree with him, you know, this is sort of, you kind of remind me a little bit of not Hank. I watched Hank and Jacob go at it in the comment section over, over healthcare because both of them are in insurance. So it was really <laughs> interesting watching them debate insurance. But I thought this is not a guy who's going to, this is not a guy who's going to sort of say, oh, they were mean to me and Paul Vandercle's live stream. Oh, no. now, this is not that guy. So here you go. Here's a test question from Chad. Could you offer some of your favorite member favorite member berries? And he asks me to not accept. I, I have to say though, before Rick showed me a year ago, I probably could not answer this question either. So he's he's sniffing you out culturally. So some of your favorite member berries. I, I have no clue what that is. South Park. I have no. Okay. You know what South Park is? I do know what South Park is. Yes. You strike yes. me as the kind of guy who probably watches almost no television. No TV. I don't have time for it. I figured as much. I figured I, I don't have time for it. That is a, so member berries are this little meme on South Park where you know the dynamic though, because they, they nail it perfectly. Uh, remember happy days. Remember, you know, it's just people when they get together, they sort of form this little this little nostalgic community over something. So Chad, Chad's basically trying to figure out if, if you're a, if you're a South Park guy. Okay. Any other questions? Clint D has another question here. Ask what Chad asked. Tell it. Um, no, no, no. It, it, you can't redo Chad's question. Come on, people. I'm, if, you, if you say question, I'm probably going to put it up unless you're just being a troll. Can you tell us about your wife and your marriage? So Gabby, um, and he's already talked a bit about about it. I don't know if you saw it earlier, but his parents, we talked about his parents' marriage, talked about his marriage. You've been married 21 years. Well, what have you learned in marriage? If you're humble enough, it keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better. And I am in, I am so in love with my wife. It's, it's unfathomable. I wouldn't, if, if you asked, if you told me as a, 50 year old man, when I was in college, that this kind of love was possible, I would not believe you. Hmm. I, I would say you're just saying that just to be a good example. Yeah. And <clears throat> I tell you what, she's incredible. She's incredible. I don't know what she's doing with me, but we had the best time together. And uh, I would not, I would not trade that for the world. It's it, she, she is literally the most, <clears throat> most valuable, most important thing in my life. And, and it's just, it's just phenomenal. Mar marriage is fantastic. If you find the right woman and you're humble enough to realize that now, now my wife also says this, she says, Rick, you're wrong 90% of the time. And I said, I'll take it. That means I'm right. 10% of the time, <laughs> you know, you got to take what you can get, Paul. It's better than a clock. Um, oh yeah. Right. Twice at the broken clock. All right. <laughs> next question from Grizz. So, so Grizz has some skepticism about, um, how on earth did you drop? How on earth did you drop his name? You must have, uh, you must have encountered the Grizz and somehow tell me about, tell me about that. So I'll go brought me to you, but Grizz channel quite a bit smaller. So you dropped his name. So how did you know about Grim Grizz? 
I guess the algorithm showed him to me at one point. Uh, I like I, I do know. I think you, I think you just quoted his his little tagline on his YouTube channel yeah. a second ago about yeah. the clock being being right or wrong half you know half the time. Uh, but yeah, yeah, just just found him and got got a chance to talk to him. I I think we follow maybe follow each other on Twitter now very recently, and uh, and so yeah, just just enjoy. I mean, it's he he is so unique. That I really, really, I really, really enjoy that. That just sort of that different, different perspective. I think he had that road trip a few days ago, whenever that yeah, was. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the little shots. I'm like, hey, this is this is just good watching. This is just good I, watching. I, I agree. I, I, I know there's a lot of channels that have sprung up because of me, but um, I knew I when Grizz Grim Grizz goes live streaming. If I'm if I'm uh, if I have eyes to be available, I I catch it, and if I don't catch it, then I can. You know, I can just sort of find the sermon at the end. I, Tayo, I think this is going to be an easy one for him. Um, oh, well, maybe not an easy. Well, why do you believe in the resurrection? I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere. Um, why do I want to believe in the resurrection? Resurrection is that if it happened for one of us anything's possible for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and so that's my motivation to believe in it, but I have to believe it based off of the own many resurrections, these pre-resurrections that I've seen in my own life, mm -hmm. everything from, from having a sickness or having a, having something happen that was just unsalvageable being resurrected. Um, it got me thinking that, that maybe, maybe it, it, it could just be possible. Um, in in little little miniature, I guess Pajot would call it a fractal. I mean, normal people would call it a fractal here, but it looks to be that way. But then when I open up literature, when I read about um, when I read about you know Dante's ascent out of hell into purgatory up into heaven, it's just one great story of one great resurrection that's happened a million times before. It, I mean, it's it's all over the place. I read about it in the letters of Van Gogh. Where he's where he's talking about the use of beatific colors that 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 reveal the beatific divine nature and that that everything that he has everything that he sees he sees it best through the dirt underneath the fingernails of the people that are closest to the earth because they, he sees divinity in this in this dirty unkept nature this messy nature of humanity a little bit what you were alluding to before about about this 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 friction that happens between one side and another the the energy and the friction and the beauty is is it all happens in the same place mm -hmm. and so and so it's that it's that energy there that i think is what will lead up to the momentum of the eventual resurrection that christ is using that um to 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 have himself be proclaimed over all and you see this not only the the you know, in the in the work of the the Buddha, but you also see this in the Vedic traditions. You see this uh, in philosophy. You read about this, although he's incorrect in his assessment in Joseph Campbell about the myths. You see this over and over and over again, and I can't help but believe that it must be true. Not because of all the evidence, because if if all the all the incorrect injustices that I've seen with my own eyes are not reverted, and not only reverted, but they're not reverted and made untrue. And then I see from my own eyes that they're made untrue. My eyes cannot see justice, let alone the, per the people that were perpetrated to get to see justice. Mm -hmm. And so both those things happen to have to happen. And so therefore, I believe that with my own eyes, I shall see the resurrection, resurrected Christ, and I see all of all the remainder come up with him. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 unstoppable. It's logically necessary. It's mathematically necessary, and it's necessary based off of every other parameter parameter that I can think of. Your answer is a lot like Jonathan Peugeot's answer. It's a good answer. Uh, I, I forget where I heard Jonathan say that. It might have been on the Sacred Podcast. All right, McMosa, here you go. Have you ever had to fire someone, and how do you fire someone like Christ? Boy, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. I and I know you've had to fire people. Um, especially given the kind of work you've done, I'm sure, I'm sure you've had to fire a lot of people. Well, well, talk to me about what it's like for a Christian to fire someone. It's important to tell them the truth that if someone is in the, is in a wrong place in their life, that they're not succeeding, you've given them chances that they're obviously doing the wrong thing. And I would be a bad Christian and they would be a bad steward of their times to remain in that, in that position. Like it would be better to be out there wondering, wondering around, trying to find the right thing for them to do with their with their lives, than for me to allow the, this to persist and to pervade, and for them to be just squandering their very life. Yeah. And so, I have a duty as a boss to make sure that you are in the place where God wants you to be, whether you believe in Him or not. And you have a you have a duty to do what's right and to do what you you were created for, whether you believe that or not. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm. Um, so what appeals to you about this little corner of the internet? And if you don't have time for TV, what value do you get out of listening to people like me and others in this little corner? I like to think about the synthesization of various domains. That's really what I like. Not necessarily the domains, not necessarily literature and art and history and world religions. I like to think about the glue that binds them. How are these connected? These sorts of these sorts of things. And so, when I hear Paul talk about um, what Verveke said on another podcast, or if I, you know, I, I heard you speak a little bit uh, with um, with Martin the other day, um, you know, I really enjoy hearing this Christianization of the mythos, and then also what what you guys are seeing, people like uh, like Paul, and then also. Um, uh, with, with you know with the other uh, other Brits if I, yeah. if I can say yeah. uh, that ha- that have pivoted over yeah. um, to to this 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 side but I like the little the the, the nichiness of the analysis yeah. because it's 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 more entertaining to me it's more intellectually stimulating and I'm someone that that believes my in- my intellect should be subservient to my imagination and so that's why I like being here very cool very cool. All right, we got a business question. What is the most important part for a business plan towards a loan? And I have no understanding of this question at all. So, because I am not a business guy, but maybe you understand it. Does it make sense? Um, my screen is inverted, so oh, I can't. I'll read it I again. can't read it. Uh, okay. What is the most important part of a business plan towards a loan investment pitch? I don't understand the question. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you need to prove three things. You need to prove that you've got competency. You need to prove that you've got integrity, and then you also have to prove that you've got the discipline to pull it off. And if you can prove those three things, um, you have a chance. You really have a chance. Uh, but the integrity is number one. The competency is number two, and the discipline is number three. Number three. And if you if you find yourself in a business situation that that you you're able to display those year after year after year, and people know you for that, people will throw money at you. Um, how do you feel about the, about the trend of deconstruction? Now, I assume he's talking about, uh, people leaving the faith and people leaving church and people walking away from church in, 
in America, you know, because it's, that had already happened in Europe, but it's we're seeing a big wave of it in America right now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I believe it was Billy Graham that was asked a number of years ago about what percentage of people that attend church on Sundays are actually Christians. And the number he threw out was something like 85% are not Christians. That that was the number he threw out. And I, I may be wrong on that, but that just seems what I remember from a number of years ago. And so this that number was striking to me that maybe it would be better for these people not to be in church and realize the depth of their depravity and where they're missing the mark than to be in church and think that they— that their social standing as a churchgoer is will somehow somehow sanctify them in the end. And so I personally would rather these people not be in a church context. I'd rather them be away from the gospel because you have to know that you're lost. And if you're if you're ever going to pivot uh, towards the light, you've got you've got to know you're lost first. And no one that thinks that they're that they're already found or that they're going in the right direction is going to pivot. Do you have a group of men and women at your church? Um, that you kick around these kinds of topics together? Not at my church. We do have a group of guys that uh, are very, very high achievers, all very well read. Uh, and we have a Junto group. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the Junto, Benjamin Franklin had a Junto group for a number of years. And these were basically the savviest men that, that he could find. And they would get they would get together for all night talking sessions. Uh, for, for our group, we get together at one of their ranches, uh, generally about every 60 days, and we speak, we talk about topics. Generally, someone will pass out uh, or send out a an article to discuss, uh, Chesterton, something like that, and we'll we'll discuss it. We'll discuss all sorts of other things late into the evening. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll all go to sleep. We'll get up in the morning. We'll have breakfast together, and then and then go to work the next day. Um, that's the closest thing that I have I have in the world to that, but it's not not connected to the church. Have you have you heard anything about uh, my estuary project? I don't know if you've uh, encountered that in the channel. What a lot of people struggle with, um, especially in the corner. Actually, I'm talking to John Van Donk after I after this conversation because I'm going to address this directly um, because people, it's there's a weird dynamic when you watch someone on YouTube. You think you know that person, and to a degree, you do, but especially at some channel that puts out as much as I put out. Most people, a few can, but most people can in no way watch everything I put out. And so the algorithm actually only, I mean, I, I watch the algorithm quite carefully and I notice that it's very selective because sometimes I'll run across certain videos and then I'll decide, okay, I'm going to dig down further. And I discover there's whole ranges of videos from a channel that the algorithm doesn't show me. It only shows me the certain videos that align up with sort of the little group that the algorithm thinks I'm part of a cohort with. And people yes. don't understand really how that works. So um, so part of what I've been working on is, John Vendonk will be very happy to hear me say this, part of what I've been working on is this estuary project. And I, we are, we are now doing it at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings because I think actually it's very helpful. Churches get very insular very quickly. And if I think probably more in the Bible belt, a lot of the stuff going on in the broader conversation is sort of echoed in the churches. But in a place like California, a lot of the stuff going on in the broader conversation is post-Christian and it's sometimes anti-Christian. So that 
there becomes then a real dislocation between the church and the culture. Now, there's an advantage to that. That's sort of a natural process by which the church sort of cocoons itself and preserves itself in a, in a hostile environment. But there's a downside to that, which is that the church loses the capacity to actually, and the members of the church lose the capacity to actually be able to productively engage in what's actually going on in their culture. And so estuary is sort of a way, it's just sort of a simple conversational, um, it's sort of a simple conversational project by which right now we've got people from our estuary group who don't go to church at all and have never been to church at all, know nothing about church. And they're sitting down with people who have gone to church for decades and they're actually being able to have a conversation together. And what they're discovering is that, oh, you have some things that I'd like to learn more about. And you'd have some things that I, and so last Sunday we had our second 9 a.m. estuary meeting. And so it's so funny because in my church, I have a lot of senior citizen African-American women who have these amazing stories about the Jim Crow South and growing up there or stories about what it's like to be poor and black in America. And you've got much more of these YouTube people who tend to be white, doing well in business. Um, and they're having these conversations with these women from the South. And it's just so much fun to watch. And so, um, yeah, so if you want to know, if you, if you want to know more about Estuary, just go to estuary, um, estuaryhub.org. And um, and or just go Paul Vanderclay Estuary and you can find out because I think that's a really critical thing going on in churches that especially in a place where churches are sort of living in a negative world, church people need to know how to live, not just within their little cocoon, but outside in the in the in the big ocean. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's a lot of the reason why I I, I still have a foot in business. Yep. as well as, as as trying to do all these other things that I'm trying to do is because I can get my foot in doors that I couldn't get in if I wasn't in business, yep. right? It's, it's, it's the platform that allows me entrance to certain rooms. And if I didn't have that, I would be very much hamstrung. So, so one of the things I like to do is I like to figure out, and you know, I'm, I'm working with people from all over the world, a lot of Indians, a lot of people from, from Asia, yeah. uh, not China. I don't, I don't do business with people in China, North Korea, anything like that, but uh, uh, Japanese, uh, South Koreans, those sorts of things. And, and we, we have really interesting conversations about what their faith is, but if I can learn a little bit about their faith, and I can learn about so so for instance, you've got this idea of uh, you know Krishna. Lord Krishna says that I I am uh, people tree. I am people tree. Uh, I'm a fig tree, and and that you know my my branches are uh, Lord uh, Lord Shiva, the destroyer. My my trunk is is Vishnu, and my my roots is Brahma. And and collectively, I am the tree. And he's like, I said, so you're telling me he's a Trinity, right? That's what you just said. You just said he's a Trinity. Well, yeah, but it's not—it's not really the same because you know we we don't believe three. You know, three isn't absolutely three. I said so. It's one. It's either it's three or it's one. It's not definitely not two. Like what? It, what is it? And so I'm able to tease them a little bit like that. And I and you know I could bring up a story. You know there was a there was a story about this about this Jewish guy. I'm not a Jew, but there's this Jewish guy that's walking into Jerusalem. He's hungry. He looks over and he sees these leaves, these these Shiva leaves, these this destroyer leaves that he, that on his fig tree should be grown in season. And he goes over there to pick some fruit. There's no fruit on it. And what does he do? He curses it with a word. And what he does, he destroys the triune 
Krishna, hmm. the triune Vedic God, not with an axe, but with a very word. And 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 so I, I you know in sixty seconds I can give them a story of the gospel, but to start where they're at, hmm. and that is one of the most enjoyable, satisfying things ever that if you can poke the bear, you sometimes you can get them to give you a little feedback or sometimes they'll invite their, their priest into the conversation, which I love. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you can't, you can't be in a better situation as someone that's trained to share the gospel. Yeah. All right. Question from Luke. How difficult is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Asking for me and most affluent people, which is Many of us on this live stream, you know, you might not feel affluent living in North America, but if you look at what people own and live and how people live around the world, if you're middle class North America, you are definitely part of the top percentages of people in America. So this, this classic Christian question, how do you answer this? Yeah. So, so the beautiful thing is God gives us all the same resolution. He gives us all the same answer that the poor man in order to get more so that he has enough to provide for his family and, and to and to be generous, he must be generous. He must give give stuff away. He must give his time away. He must give his money away. In fact, Lewis would say that the only safe amount to give is more than you can afford. Hmm. But for the wealthy man, his solution to fight his own greed, which is the which is the damnation. This is what this is what Christ talks about in the Gospels. He talks about giving away. It's not how much. It's not what you give away. It's how much you keep. Like you shouldn't really keep it, keep anything. Um, that, that the solution for the for the rich man is generosity as well, that you should give that away because if you give it away, you don't value as much and you you, you slowly move your heart away for it. Let me let me let me let me throw one other scriptural thing since we're on a we're on a, a Christian podcast here. I don't do a lot of Christian podcasts, so this is this is fun. Um the um the, there's a command in the New Testament that says love your neighbor as yourself, that also has a mathematical equivalent that I should spend as much on myself as I do on others and only that much, which means I should be giving away half my income for others, right? Love is, you know, you can, you can show it based off your calendar or your pocketbook. There's not a whole other, lot of other ways to do that. Hmm. I, That's true. All right. Pseudo Boethius wants to know, what does he think about the future of America? We have a we have a serious birth rate problem. We need to we need to get our get our hands around. We're we're very very soon, maybe in fifty years, going to find ourselves in the in the situation of South Korea. Uh, that's a that's a risk. The bigger risk, I believe. Uh, now, I, I served on a on a Middle Eastern Jewish board. Um, I'm someone that had a fatwa against me for a time, uh, for another um, another organization I served in. Uh, so I'm very very sensitive to this. Um, but the the Muslim birth rates are very very high. I think the last time I looked, maybe a decade ago, they were they were in excess of eight, and that's their strategy. They're going to just going to flood the market with Muslims. And if you look up in the Sahel region of Africa, what you'll see is you'll see this battle going back and forth. So they they they're called um, to build a mosque every I think it was like every five miles. And it got to be every three miles. It was something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see this battle from missionary organizations going in there and converting these these little disparate tribal regions and they'll convert them. The mosque will become a church and the church will become a mosque. And there's all there's there's this back and forth there. You will begin to see that here in America and you won't have a problem with right and left or 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 genders or anything like that. You have a problem with the the Antichrist manifest as the Mahdi coming in here trying to put you put you and your Christ under their subservience. That's going to be your big problem. 
Michael Satori asks, have you considered integrating an apprentice program into your businesses as a means of discipleship? Yes. So we, we have run scenarios where we would spend a year with young people that are generally just maybe just came out of school with their MBA. And so I'll, I'll meet with them generally once a month and we'll talk about um, high conceptual things. So, so I'll break down, for instance, the Dow forum and show and teach them about yin and yang and how all that kind of cascades uh, down into, into reality uh, without a Christian bent, but I think you can get there very, very closely, very, 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 very shortly from there. Um, but, but I, I do do that. I, I would be very interested in trying to figure out a way to scale that. So, you know, if anyone has any ideas about how to scale something like that, uh, on YouTube or some other parameter, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears because I think there, that would be a, a very, a very good leverage point. Well, Michael, um, Michael lives in new England and he's, um, you can, you can come back and you can get his name here and then you can find his YouTube channel. Yeah. He, he, he noted that a lot of, a lot of young men, I mean, part of what, part of the problem we have in our culture, I think actually right now is we have, we have too much of a, we have sort of a fetish about higher education. And so we think unless someone is going to college, you know, they don't have a future. And the truth is, especially for a lot of men, um, more than women, men often just in terms of our disposition, we like to work with our hands. We like to work with real things. And he noted that in churches that tended to have a lot of older people, you could find a lot of older men with a lot of skills, skills in woodworking, machining, uh, landscaping, a lot of skills in the physical world. And, and there are a lot of men growing up, especially in the meaning crisis space that aren't that, that don't have these skills. They don't, they might not have fathers that are passing them down to them. They might ha not have any of this thing going on. And so he said, why don't we, why don't we teach some of these men, these skills by using often some of these retired older men to uh, teach the younger men. And, um, and so Michael has a, as a, and he's integrated this in terms of Christian discipleship as well, which I thought is a, is really a cool idea. And so if you're curious about this, you can check out Michael's channel or contact him. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you about it. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely want to check that out. I, because I, I think that problem even continues up in the men in fifties and sixties, because I, th I think you've got a lot of men that have graduated school. They've gone and sat behind the same desk for, for 20 years, 30 years. And so you have 60 year old boys in essence working there have never taken a risk, never done anything, never given them their time or their money or their, or their assets, never really cared about anything other than themselves and their, their little cohesive family of four. And that's a big, that's a big challenge as well. And so I, I think there, there are men that God, God is going to put in place that will, that will attack each generation there and, and provide the information, provide the encouragement that they, that they need. Yeah. Uh, but, but there again, you got to fix the why before you can fix the, the how and the, and yeah. the what. All right. Do you ever feel guilty for your high levels of competence and success compared to the majority of others? Sometimes it feels like worldly successes and Christian teachings are at odds. Do I ever read that guilty. again? It's a long question. Yeah. One more time. One more time. Okay. Do you ever feel guilty for your high levels of competence and success compared to the majority of others? Sometimes it feels like worldly successes and Christian teaching are at odds. Yeah. So it's, do I, do I feel guilty? Um, I do not feel guilty because while most people were sleeping this morning, I was already at the office working. 
I, I don't, I don't feel guilty for that. Um, I, I don't feel guilty for that. I don't feel guilty that for the first 25 years of, of me running this business that I worked uh, 16 hour days and while everyone else worked eight hour days, you shouldn't feel guilty because mathematically you gained 25 years of experience, but I gained 50 years of experience. I made more mistakes, but I, I was humble enough to see what the mistakes were, learn from my mistakes and repeat. And my repetitive cycle, my feedback loops, they got faster and faster and faster. And so I, I'm sitting here, basically a 45 year old with 50 years of experience compared to everyone else. I don't feel guilty for that. It's just a math game. It's pure math that anyone else can do. Chad wants to know, what do you do for fun? Man, I'm doing volleyball tournaments. I'm going to basketball. Tournament. Middle school girls basketball is the best sport in America. Those girls will fight it out. They'll duke it out. It's 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 fantastic. And then I've got a pre-professional ballerina as well. So man, we're 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 going to lessons like you know five nights a week. I'm getting you know my my last pickup most nights is nine thirty. So I'm picking up my daughter from ballet at nine thirty, then trying to get home and feed her feeding her again, yeah. and trying to get to bed by ten ten thirty. Uh, yep. That that keeps me pretty busy. Yep. Yep. All right. Are you the best in the world at what you do? Absolutely not. I'm horrible. Uh, uh, no, I, you know, I'm not even a good Christian. I'm not even a good Christian. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that I can be the best in the world at. I know that I know you kind of look at those concentric, you know, Venn diagram, uh, things on YouTube that, that say you should find out what you're the best in the world at. Um, I, I may be the best in the world at, at realizing that I, I really know nothing that that's, that's really what I could be the best in the world of not, not knowing, not knowing what I don't know, but realizing that there's, there's a lot of things that I don't know. All right. I am going to um, I'm going to drop the link into the hive mind. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of questions. So um, so get ready, Rick. Um, like I said, I, I decided to do this. I decided to do this with you because you didn't seem like someone who was gonna who was gonna back down from a and it's been uh, just watching the hive mind, it's been an interesting, interesting show. And I I frankly I hate, I don't hate, I, I, I fear cocoons and cocoons develop in lots of different ways and cocoons have their, have their role. But when people, this is probably why I'm so high in openness. When people decide they're going to just take a certain thing and say, I'm, I'm not going to be, and everybody has a right to to have their own opinion, but, um, I, um, I like, uh, I like, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad you came on. I'm really glad you're willing to do this. Well, you, you volunteered. So I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm a, I'm a frustrated individual to my wife. Um, I, I think I mentioned one of the emails. I've done some, some atheist debates you could probably find online. Yep. I am frustrating to them because they want to talk about technical technicalities in the scripture. Yep. And I, I'm trying to give context and I'm trying to tell stories around it. And, it's just a frustrating thing. Yeah. Well, here's here's the guy, Michael. Tell us, tell Michael. us about, tell us about. You asked the apprenticeship question, which I thought was a great question, and I tried to give some fair assessment of your of your ministry. So maybe you can uh, shed that, or maybe you have another question. Uh, yeah. No. Well, I, so I am. I'm in Texas, by Rick. I'm not. I'm not living in. Right. I grew up in New England, but I've been in. I've been in Texas for five years now. Oh, so. Okay. okay Welcome. So, yeah. Thank. Well. Yeah. So um, I. Uh, I work um, full time for a, um, a cabinet co company, and um, I'm also a youth pastor. And you know, my story was that I, my dad was a pastor, and um, 
he got saved in the 70s and all he cared about was that his kids knew Jesus, which unfortunately meant that he didn't really um, uh, prepare me for how to how to make a living too well. <laughs> and um, I kind of fell 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 backwards into um, a trade career through some opportunities that I got and, you know, ultimately came to realize that, you know, working with your hands is a very spiritual uh, spiritually beneficial process. And, and it's, you know, while I'm listening to Paul every morning, I'm, you know, working on cabinets and things. And so, um, so I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to pr uh, produce resources for people who, who work in trades, who might be able to bring somebody on and show them the ropes. And, um, you know, cause it's like 60% you know, of guys aren't even going to college these days. And, um, but they're not they're, Some of them are, are getting into the trades. Most of them are staying in their parents' basement playing video games. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, my, my, um, thing, but, uh, you know, I, I have the the vision. I don't have the business acumen to figure all of it out. But but I'm you know trying to reach out and get in touch with other people because people seem to be receptive to the idea. And um, uh, like you, I also have three daughters, so that's my concern for the future: yeah. is who who are these young men and where are they going to come from? So, um, the, so that's that's my deal. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think a lot of it is just realizing you come you come from a line of men that work with their hands as they taught, right? Yeah, one of the one of the things I put in the email to Paul was that I'm just a tent maker. You know, I might I might have a I might have a title that people like to have, but I'm just a tent maker. Um, I work with my hands mainly with my fingers, but I I, I work with my hands, and uh, and and if I can help people along as I'm doing that, I think that's I think it's fantastic. But I think that you're you know. Your your strategy to be able to add value uh, in a in a very very tangible act activity um, is what will open up the opportunity to share more than someone coming off the street or someone on a YouTube channel, right? You know, you can be in person and you can add you can add that value in a way that no one else can do. Uh, and I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful thing because you're actually using your you're trading your time for influence. Uh, most most of the people that you see online are not trading time for influence. Paul, Paul excluded. Uh, they're they're trading they're trading um, influence for power is what they're trying to do. Yeah. And, and so and so you you're doing something that that seems to be more holy in nature, and that you're right. And that you know if you if you can get this to propagate in some way, shape, or form, where you can you can encourage other people. To to share what you teach them, I think that's where the gold's really going to be in. You know, we used to plant churches. We planted over fifteen thousand churches at one of the organizations I was in charge of. You never plant a church unless it's a pregnant church already. Like you, you've got to have the next generation already birth in the in the actual birthing. It, it's you've got to have repetition and skill uh, there uh, because that's how you that's how you get leverage. I, I love what you're doing, Michael. That that is awesome. So, yeah, feel feel free to reach out. Um, if, you know, if I can be of assistance on anything. Great. Steve, the golfer. <laughs> hey there. Love it. All right, Good. Steve. <laughs> hey, what do you have uh, to say for yourself? Well, I, I well, I, so I, 
I was watching another stream, so I missed the very beginning, and it was wasn't really clear to me. It, it was almost like we were listening to AM radio. So <laughs> it was like, what are we listening to? It's like AM Blue Church Radio or something. <laughs> So this isn't I'm, blue church. This is this is he's the least blue church guy I've ever had on my channel, <laughs> at least overtly. So <laughs> uh, he had he had Donald J. Trump Jr. in it. I don't know Donald Trump Jr.'s middle initial, but come on, this is this is this is stretching y'all in openness on a new Luke would show because nobody's more open than Luke. <laughs> oh, I, I'm, being, I'm being open. I, I'm just I'm I wasn't sure. Like, like I was saying in the chat, like this is watching this particular episode is kind of like, I, I felt like how my wife feels when she watches PVK. <laughs> what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> so, I was just curious, like what, so what is the, what were you, what were you hoping to do with the show? Like I, like I wasn't sure what we were, what the, it wasn't your typical randos format. It didn't seem like. No, it did. I mean, I, I spent the first really hour go, getting into his story. Oh, so I'm the idiot. Son of no, a... you're not an idiot, Chad. I'm oh, sorry, I'm Steve. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, um, what's your name? Rick. Hey, I was just, uh, I didn't want to be rude to you with the questions. I, I was just curious um, about, you know, like, who is this dude? And so I wasn't trying to be rude. Just asking some questions, testing you a little bit. And yeah, so, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's all I want to say. I'm actually Chad. I, it's all stupid. So why why did you want hey, to Chad. come on? Why did you want to come on, Rick? Why Steve. You, why did you want yeah. to come on, Rick? Well, I, I thought it'd be great to meet you, Paul. I thought it'd be great to to have a conversation with everyone that's watching you. Got, you've got some very interesting people watching. I've got I've got a handful of guys that are wearing suits all day. They're that are that are uh, a little more, a little more buttoned down here, but uh, yeah, I thought it'd be great. Um, and and just just frankly, for the for the tactical nature of it, uh, you know, I am working on a book that be written in six or seven months. And I'm, so I'm just trying to get out there a little bit more. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, Luke. Uh, what do you have to say? It's it's. Luke was the one. Luke, you've Luke's. I love Luke's. You know, so so Grizz. I always tune into Grizz, but lately, Luke. You know, he's got these early morning live streams that I've I've really been enjoying. Can't always catch. So, um, well, what do you what what do you have to say, Luke? So, thank you. I so I I'm excited to go back and hear the intro where I hear more of the detail, the specifics, and the rando stuff. Um, but I just caught the tail end because I just didn't see it until right now. And uh, and I wanted to say two things. First off, uh, I appreciate you coming in here because truly the. I've, I've been talking about on my live streams that a lot of what happens in this little corner of the internet, particularly the PVK corner of the internet is, is almost like a, I see it almost as like a remedy for a lot of mainstream Christian culture, which is what a lot of us are somewhat uh, outcasts or like uh, in recovery from a little bit. And so and, and I still have family that's still very much in that. And I'm still like, I'm Orthodox. So I'm going to like an established church, but it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird world to put yourself into. Like, I mean, I would almost say that like the kind of Southern Baptist evangelical type people, although I know a lot of those and a lot of those are my friends. They're almost like that culture is almost like the opposite kind of culture <laughs> of this culture. And oh, yeah. so, um, 
I really appreciate you coming in here and uh, and just stepping into the hornet's nest a little bit. And then the other thing is Tayo was saying in the in the chat a lot that and he was observing this. And I think it's very true. There can almost be like a like a body a bodily antibody reaction to to someone like you coming in here. And that's a little bit bullshit, I think. Like, I mean, I want people like you in here in a very personal and relational way. And so I just thank you for doing that and putting yourself out there because it takes some uh, courage, balls, maybe you could say. Yeah, yeah. No, I, pr- I really do appreciate that, Luke. It, it, it seems to me that that us guys who, who wear suits most days, um, that, that, we, that there are certain areas, I wouldn't call them corners, but necessarily, but there are certain areas where uh, we feel a little bit less welcome sometimes. Um, yep. and I, I think that, you know, if we, if we were to have a, a, a full two hour theological conversation, you will see how much of a mystic I really am. Like nice. I, I'm going to, I'm going to out mystic all of you. Um, you already it's gonna won. Be, it's going to be so, it's going to be so insane. And, and, but some of us have bills to pay. Some of us have very expensive wives. Some of us have made commitments to nonprofit organizations that we can't fulfill unless we keep, we keep working. And so thus the suit comes on. And this is what you get sometimes. But yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Luke. That, that was awesome here. Great. Thank you, Luke. Uh, Grim Grizz. All right. Grim, all right. <laughs> Grim, Grim is skeptical. Grim is like, I don't know. Can, can, can a guy, does a guy like this really watch? Let's find out, Pastor Paul. Let's right. find out. What is obvious to me is that everybody who has participated in this in this stream needs a savings throw versus mind control. <laughs> everybody who watches me should knows how those work. So um, choose, Rick. So I guess mind control. I'm doing a savings throw versus mind control. You guys, you, you see, this the is participants I'm, I'm, who watch me know they get a choice when I do a savings throw versus mind control, and so clearly you knew you know to choose one of the choices I always present. Choose, Grizz. You don't. I'm 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 totally with Luke in this. You know, this is. Let me tell. Let me tell you what happened with my Jordan Peterson meetup. We had the Jordan Peterson meetup. It was going for a number of years. And then we had COVID. And so, you know, we had to co- sort of, you know, okay, don't want, you know, the old, uh, anyway. And then a bunch of people are like, we like our meetup. We just don't want new people. <laughs> and when I uh, heard that, I sir, said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not putting up barriers. I'm not putting up barriers. I agree. And, uh, I heard a story on a live stream yesterday, and in your description of this live stream, the only reason this happened was because of my name drop. And as no, such, he also dropped Matthew yeah. Peugeot too. Yeah. Uh, well, well, that's not what it said in the description. Yeah. And 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 Verveke. and Verveke. Yeah, well, and, and I never, I never, I never said we were best friends. I, I said like I. You asked the name of the people in the corner is what is I think what Paul's challenge was. It but, was good. It, yeah. I, it was a tactical move and it was genius, Rick. I'll give you that. But that's exactly why people need the savings throw versus the mind control. And everybody who knows, make your choice. <laughs> I choose navigating patterns. <laughs> Those of you who chose survival, 
it's a 12. Those of you who chose social, it's an 18. Those of you who chose wisdom, Baker's Coven, 13. And those of you who chose heart, seven. You're going to need your bonuses. Indigo oh. Kids with the 15. And thank you, Paul. I'm always I'm always a heart. Now, hang on, Chris. I got a question for you about the savings throws. Are the savings throws good per live stream or per day? Because, you know, I caught the savings throws this morning and... Um... Well, if you catch them, you can use them until the next batch. That's how that works. Because sometimes I go days without live streams and you're still running on the old ones. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Grizz. Thank you, Grizz. Anything else, Chad? You wanna you wanna bring in? Uh, I don't know. Do you... Well, uh, let me ask you, Rick. Do you have any questions for us? Because I mean, I I, I know. Just like I said, groups get insular, and then they have their rituals. And then, if you go to church, and, and it was just actually, I know this because people go into a church. And especially if the church is thick, there's stand up, sit down, there's say these words, there's do these things. And even if they're a low church, there's all these little tests to say, are you one of us? And at one level, that's a really healthy thing because groups have to know, you know, who's who's who in the group. But these things also can become something that are very exclusive. And it's like, you'll never be one of us because you don't have this. And so that's that's part of the reason why I am so glad you're here because um, at Grim Grizz's, Grim Grizz's um, thing this morning was, was this little cave. And I was going to make a video about that. And because I'm, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm concerned about. Um, I, I don't want this little corner or this little clearing to become this little cave. So doesn't exist. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> you came back on, Michael. Well, yeah. So, so since you were saying that, I did think of a question for Rick is, you know, what do you, because this is a little bit my other, the other half of my project. What do you think the, the normal evangelical world needs from this corner and, and, you know, these conversations with people like Paul and, and the others associated Pete and I, Pete and I had a talk, and it's releasing on my channel right after this. It was a great okay. talk. Oh, great! Okay. I need to check that out. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful to know what some of you more outspoken guys are reading, what you're watching. I think that would be very helpful. So, so like for for me, let me let me just let me just use JBP for for an example. I'm listening to this guy, and all he's doing is talking about you know five years ago. He's talking about Jung and he's talking about Joseph Campbell, but he never says Joseph Campbell. It's over and over and over again. Like, just tell me you're you're reciting Joseph Campbell. Just tell me that you're you're blaming Christianity. You can never accept Christianity because there was myths that came beforehand. Like, just tell me that. Just tell me that. And that's what I'd like to hear from you know not only this corner but also other corners. Like, what are the inputs? Hmm. What are the inputs? You know, I I'm spending time. Going back and you know I'm you know mentioned Dante earlier. I'm reading Dostoevsky. I'm reading uh, I'm reading poetry. I'm I'm looking. I'm you know visiting art museums to try to figure out what did Rembrandt mean by this or that. And I'm, I'm reading you know myths and I, I'm I'm reading the actual source text. But then I get on YouTube and I hear people that are that are reciting stuff that they they learned on YouTube videos, and there's no source documentation on that. And so I would like to find out. 
what the hell is going on? Like, where are people learning this stuff? Yeah. Uh, I must be missing stuff. If you go over to the Friday morning nameless, I often will mention all of the different literature that I'm uh, <coughs> reading or or films I'm quoting from. So yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of that. I mean, Grail Country is great for that. You know. Okay. Would but you would you, you link to that in the comments? Got to be better about putting in your um putting in your links in the notes. I'm I work very hard to make sure all of my links get in the notes because I'll often watch something on one of the other channels and they'll mention something and they haven't put it in the notes. And I think that's you know Grizz has sort of been good at sort of forming people in certain ways with his branding and teaching us some things. But one of the things I'd admonish a lot of the smaller channels is. When you when you have something in your live stream, um, put it in your notes so that other people can follow up. Because what you just said right now, Rick, is super important because that's how I use YouTube, too. I hear a little something and it's like, OK, now I want to dig into that because there's probably more gold where that little bit of gold was found. Yeah, we don't want to be like normie Christian YouTube where they don't link to anybody else's channel. This is a conglomerate. You got to follow the white rabbit, you know, where it leads. And that's, you know, that's part of it that it's like the appendix of a book, you know? Yeah. So we got, yes. we got navigating patterns mentioned, Michael, what's the name of your channel? Uh, so Michael, mine is my name for the one where I say all the crazy stuff, but tectonic school is my one where I try to focus on the trade apprenticeship apprenticeship thing. So, and, and Pete, you've got, I'm a strange theology is my sort of like a podcast style YouTube channel. I look at theology when it pops up in strange places. I like oh. that. Yeah. So, so, okay, Pete. So you, you jumped in. What would you like okay. to say? Okay. This actually goes to something that Chad posted not too long ago. Uh, sorry, Steve. Um, <laughs> and, and it was, it was a, it's a clip from um, Jonathan Bajot talking about the fringes of the garments of the priest and the fringes of the field. And I think Paul, like what you're doing right now is great. Like Rick, I don't know you from the next guy on the street, never seen you before show up on Paul Vanderclay's channel. I know I've watched Paul's channel, stuff like that. And, and, and what it is, is it's as your field grows, the, the, the fringes, the edge of that field that people can glean is it's like, it's less accessible. I'm not a, mathematician so maybe somebody can help me out with this idea but it seems like the ratio to edge and area gets out of balance the bigger you get and so i think there's something that has to happen to break up that field or to still allow people to access sort of the fringe of the field while not being dislocated from what the thing is in the center am i making any sense <laughs> Because like, that's, that's what I feel about like this little corner, the phenomenon that's going on, even Paul's channel, other channels that are bigger. It's like, you're not gonna, how do I reach what's in, in that field? And I want to glean from the edges. I want to still be let in around the edges, but the, the bigger you get, the more dislocated the edges from the core, if that makes sense. And so Paul, what you're doing right now with Rick, is like, it's something to do with that. Um, I don't know where Rick came from. You know, Rick knows Rick's story. Um, but but here you are. You're 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 in a way disrupting the imbalance. Hope and, and in a way hoping hoping to bring us back into some sort of balance to say, yeah, it's a little weird to 
to see unfamiliar faces or hear unfamiliar voices. And I want to embrace that weirdness. I want to embrace the challenge of a new voice. I don't want the field to just get big and filled with all the same stuff. Because that's, uh, I think Luke was saying earlier, we want to be the antidote to that type of behavior. That was my thought. Well, and I think, I think part of what, like, the banter was part of the welcoming party a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and they, I think that's, that's kind of a normal thing. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, I don't really know what your question was, but. No, it's not a question. I just oh. wanted to. I just wanted to point that out. I feel like, I feel like what Paul is doing, in a way, is is somehow, and I and I don't fully understand it, but it's somehow preventing the edge of the field from being dislocated from what the center of the field yes. is. Like, and that's... and I think I I understand completely what you're saying, Pete. Or I think I under I think I very much understand what you're saying, and I very much feel those dynamics. Yeah. Because, and this is also part of the reason why. You know, I'm, I'm stressed right now to find enough time during the month to get everything. But why I've continued to have, you know, non-membership randos links out there. And I know it's almost impossible sometimes to get a link. But this is why I want to have input into my channel that I don't control. And it's it's very much tied with what I learned from Peugeot with respect to the garments on the, the fringe on the garment or the edges of the field. Unless you keep enough openness in your system to allow something different from what you've had, that field is actually going to have a problem. It's for the health of the field that it has a fringe. Yep. And you have to sometimes bring this in to, to you know, it's sort of, what was I, and I, I have no idea if this makes any sense physiologically, but it's sort of the idea behind, um, you know, the, this this little fasting trend that's going on in health things, uh, or it's it's similar if you're dieting. So one of the things, if you want to lose weight, and every now and then it's like, yeah, I got to gain, I got to start losing weight, is you start dieting, and every now and then you kind of kind of have to do something dramatic because your body has sort of accustomed itself to the new diet, and you stop losing weight, so you have to do something mm -hmm. to shock it again so that you can keep going where you want to go. And, and I, I've seen that in churches, and that's why if, if you don't really bother your church sometimes, if you don't really cause people in that church to say, wait a minute, do I really belong here? You need to incorporate that in your system to actually keep the system healthy. Well, and, and to keep to your farming um, a metaphor there, and when you... Farmers will ha have to rotate their crops in their fields. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, your fields will die. <laughs> yep. And if you have a monocrop, that monocrop becomes susceptible to disease. Yep. It just gets wiped out. You want that diversity to yep. prevent a catastrophic failure of your of your crop. Yep. Yep. Look at chaos and order, as, as uh, David Boyer said. Um, it's you've, you, you get too much order. And, you know, and I'm, I've been going through the gospel of Mark in my rough drafts and that, you know, it's just like, just like you said, Rick, you know, um, <laughs> I don't mind, I don't mind, um, I don't mind him dropping an F-bomb in the stream if, if, if that's how he uses it, because he's right. Because if you're really reading the beginning of the gospel of Mark, I mean, and I love Matthew and I love Luke. 
but they're different documents. The beginning of the Gospel of Mark just breathes from someone, probably Peter, who watched it happen, who had his life turned upside down by this Jesus. And even though Matthew and Luke probably take from Mark, what is preserved in Mark is this sense that Jesus was doing this stuff and nobody but nobody knew what to think of him. His own family got to a point of saying, we, we better step in because what has happened to our nice Jewish boy? And, and if you lose this, if you lose this, if you lose this, you lose something of the gospel. Because unless Jesus can completely turn your life upside down, it's probably not Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think exactly what you just said. You look at the you look at the opening to Mark chapter two. Jesus is at home in Capernaum. The house is packed, and they're trying to get a paralytic in there. So they start ripping off the the roof of Jesus' own home, which probably had mud and all sorts of things. And they they let him in. And what happens? He changes everything. He says he the Bible says it sees the, the faith of the four men that let him in, and then he imputes forgiveness on the cripple based off the. The, the other four men's faith. That's insanity. That is complete and utter insanity. And then the scribes that are sitting there, he reads their minds. He reads their damn minds for which, my customers. Which probably wasn't real hard because he knew exactly what they were thinking. No, no. Oh. They're, they're thinking to himself, this is, this is blasphemy. And he said, I'll show you blasphemy. What's well, harder for me to either say your sins are forgiven or say get up and take your mat and go home. He, he came and asked him to take his mat and go home. The guy leaves. And then... And so what, what, what are we left at? We're left, we're left with Jesus standing face to face with the chief, with the uh, with the scribes, with a hole in his roof, and then below them the mud. So you've got the vertical connection. They're looking up through the ceiling at the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. They're looking down at their feet at the very mud that the, that the same breather who is the same word is standing right there who breathed in the mud and gave them life. That's their very being. Yep. And then horizontally, he tells you that you've got to forgive one another and you come to me for forgiveness only. Yep. He, he, he wipes the floor with everything vertically and horizontally in Mark chapter 2. And then the rest of the stuff is just a free-for-all. No, I agree. I agree 100%. And if, you know, both both sides, I mean, and, and, and Pete, I think you really nailed it with what you're talking about in terms of the field. I mean, God comes into Israel and everybody thinks they know yeah. what God is going to yeah. do. And as soon as you adopt that attitude, you have basically said, I've mapped God. Yeah. And the minute you think you've mapped God, <laughs> yeah. So I, I always say, uh, be be careful of anybody who claims to be an expert in theology, because because the the journey of theology should keep you very humble and like it, it's going to surprise you. Like you're you're never going to have this figured out. Yeah. <laughs> like, All right. Well, yeah. it's it's noon and. Um... And I've got a I've got a 1 p.m. with Vendank, and I've got a rough draft, and I've got all these things I've got to do. But Rick, I just want to thank you for for being bold and for uh, shaking up my little email inbox and talking your way onto the live stream and being willing to come in here. And and that's the thing I I I I, I hesitate to do Rando's conversations on a live stream because 
live stream can be a little rough, but when I got your email, I thought, no, this guy, this guy can take it. And I'm so glad that you came in. Hey, this is, this has been a blast, Paul. I I really do appreciate you having me on and I look forward to reading the comments. I haven't read the comments left yet. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. All right. So, and thank all of you for joining and thank you, uh, Steve, for coming in. Nice to meet you, Steve. First time, you know, long time listener, first time streamer. Yep. 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 Thanks guys. And Michael and Luke and Grizz, thank you all for coming in. So I am ending the transmission. Well, thank you.